0: Welcome back to Better Things with Joe Bianca. This is episode eight. In this episode, I'm gonna talk to the executive director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, Pat Cummings, one of the smartest, most thoughtful people I know in this business, the TIF does great work on behalf of horse players, on behalf of owners, and to really fix those structural issues in racing in a way that I don't think anybody else has ever done. So let's talk to Pat. Joining me today on Better Things is one of the sharpest guys I know in racing, the executive director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, Pat Cummings. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. Always great to talk to you. One of the most thoughtful people I know, so I know this is going to be a great conversation. But let's start. Oh, laugh! That's you're a thoughtful guy. Even maybe you I got three bourbons in, but we'll we'll get to that point. <laughs> Uh, so we'll, we'll st- I'll start with the Thurman Idea Foundation, because I think you guys have provided such a valuable service to the industry, especially to the horse player. Can you just talk about the genesis, genesis of that, why you and Craig Burnick decided to start that, and kind of how its role has morphed from what, you've, what you initially envisioned? Yeah,
1: um, I think when, you, when you're starting something truly brand new in racing, uh, you really don't know where it's going to go. Uh, you don't know where it's going to start and where it's going to take you. And uh, it was certainly, and, and you know, Craig Burnick is, is 100% the reason it happened. Um, it was his vision. Uh, it might not have started out um, exactly as he envisioned it uh, and where it has gone today, but it has emerged and it has evolved into that, into more than four years now of trying to advocate for a variety of issues. And look, the take was very simple. Uh, horse players and horse owners drive the sport. It is their participation. They are the the voluntary contributors. And so many other people along the way are takers. And without the horse player, without the horse owner, we we, we really don't end up with a sport. And while there is so much, and and this was even at the time, I, I think, you know, the the conversation was was uh, there was a lot of focus on the LASIKs issue. Um, I'd say there isn't as much anymore, right? But there is still some. Uh, but the 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 concept was everyone's talking about LASIKs. Uh, let's talk about the things that matter to the people who put their money up day in and day out. Whereas it was a lot of horsemen, um, trainers, assistants, and certainly some owners too, right, who were, who were talking about that issue. But you know, our, our, our game is not defined by LASIKs alone. Uh, they run the races in plenty of other places on Earth without it. So uh, let's tackle the issues, the uh, issues to, to, that affect betters, how they contribute, how we deal with this competitive environment that we're in, probably a more competitive environment gaming, gambling space than we've ever seen, and it only gets more and more competitive day in and day out. And uh, look, there's trickle down to owners for that, right, Um, through prize money and participation and fan base. So uh, it was trying to focus on the issues that weren't really being focused on, and I think we've done a good job of picking out a few topics, focusing on those, and really trying to
0: drive change in a variety of different ways. You've really done that, and I think you, you guys, not so much for the owners, but for the horse players, you guys are the voice to the voiceless. Now, that's not necessarily the case with racing Twitter. I think a lot of people have become more loud and more visible on behalf of the horse players, but I think in an official capacity, you guys are that voice. Now, that that entails – calling out racetracks and calling out racing commissions and, and some, of, some of the bullshit that goes on where horse players are the last to be thought of. Have you faced any pushback from that, from any of the powers that be in racing? Yeah, I
1: think some take it personally from time to time and they shouldn't, uh, but but some people do. And I don't think we have really often called out individuals. Um, I think we called out the system, uh, right? It's not hate the player, hate the game. Um and, and that, I think, is the case, right? You have to have a working relationship with racetracks, with racing commissions. Uh, there, I think, is a mutual respect there. And I think we've built that up over, over the years, where they know that we're not just trying to play a game of gotcha. Uh, we're, we, we are really looking to improve the sport for those who participate in it. But with that does come criticism, and where that criticism uh, originates is from a place of great frustration, uh, from the fact that that you know, individually this, this is kind of a, a, a one person to the sport game. It is you know the, the better looks at themselves as a participant, but does not see representation. And it's it's different if you're just a fan as opposed to if you are a better and. Yeah, so we, I think we've taken up the mantle in certain cases, uh, some very direct, some indirect, some that never really had much public view, to uh, go to racetracks and say, what are you doing here? Or commissions, how did you let this happen? Or uh, I think the, the more important uh, question, particularly to the commissions, is how can we make sure this bad situation doesn't happen again?
0: Yeah, well, one of the success stories I think of the is, of the TIF is penny breakage. That's something that you were on for a long time. Which, for anybody who's not familiar, is basically just stolen money from horse players, where the the payouts get rounded down to sometimes the twentieth, the twenty cent uh, marker, sometimes ten cent barrier, but really you should be getting paid out to the penny. And that passed. There, there was a bill passed in Kentucky that now in every Kentucky racetrack. Betters get paid $4.37 for a $2 win bet instead of $4.20. Talk me a little bit through, I'm sure you were in contact with Representative Koenig, who was one of the people that ushered that through the Kentucky House. Talk to me about that process, how it started to get traction on a legislative level. So it was one of our, it was
1: the original white paper that we wrote. And The way in which we have tackled these topics is to take a broad topic and then tell the story of that broad topic through a a smaller kind of subset. And penny breakage was the way to tell the the story of cost matters to betters, right? We need to be attentive to uh, costs and expenses that our customers bear. And penny, you know, breakage was was frustrating. Uh, It was 2018, Justify had won the Triple Crown uh, and, and there were actually a couple you know egregious examples of of, of him paying you know 220 or uh, 220 to place or show in one of the triple crown races and if if there had been penny breaks it was I think it was in Maryland uh, he would have paid like 236 right and how much money that actually uh, was that was withheld from winning betters and look it's it's The task and the challenge of something like uh, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority has shown a lot of people how difficult it is to operate and get all states together on the same topic. Well, breakage is no different. Uh, Individual states, tracks, uh, have statutes, rules um, that need to be changed. And and the process of making those changes is not simple. So fortunately, in uh, Kentucky, uh, Representative Adam Koenig first heard about this about tif and about our case with breakage on the steve bick show and he turned around and reached out and we sat down a you know couple months after the paper was released and uh with damon thayer the senate majority leader here in kentucky a longtime member of the assembly and uh, you need the house and the senate side right to uh, to pull this off and it was more or less planting a seed and a lack of recognition that that this was an issue. He he didn't even know anything about it, did uh, Adam. Uh, Was a longtime horse player, didn't even know it existed. And I think a lot of horse players don't. And now we are, you know, two months into penny breaks in Kentucky, and you're still finding people who say, hey, I just noticed this. And it's going to happen with Keeneland in October. It's going to happen at the Breeders' Cup, uh, probably most of all. That someone is, you know, they're going to get two twenty-four on Jackie's Warrior to show, and they may have gotten two twenty before, and and uh, that is um, that's attractive, and it, it's trying to draw attention to the fact that cost matters, and now um, a lot of this was timing, right? So so Adam Koenig was going through a process. Uh, the entire legislature was in the aftermath of the historical horse racing legislation from 2021, early 21, to divide, well, they needed to have a um, task force that was set up to look at all of paramutual wagering in Kentucky. And they wanted to standardize tax rates, uh, look to make sure that everyone was really getting a fair share from HHR revenue. But Adam said, look, we've taken care of everyone let's take care of the betters. And this was one of the things that was proposed. Uh, I testified in front of the the committee and put this forward and, and look, the timing was just right. There were four bills in the legislature last session that had something to do with horse racing or wagering or wagering related topics. This is the only one that passed and was signed into law. And, uh, you know, I think maybe because it was set up with the with the task force and it had gone through a, a really thorough process, but even still, I you know, there, there's a great deal of both hard work and luck uh, that we were able to get this get this through and really provide something back to horse players, give them more of their rightful winnings, and I think that's great for for horse racing, for anyone who enjoys purse money from horses from from racing, to get more back from betters. Uh, by allowing them to churn their winnings more as opposed to the track just holding it and taking it and adw just holding and taking that money we want to reignite those takeout cycles uh, it's a small thing Joe um, but at the same time it's 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 I think a meaningful
0: step to really raise awareness well it's 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 very tangible like you like you said like I've forgotten when when it uh, when it was implemented at Ellis, I'd forgotten that it was all of Kentucky when Kentucky Downs came around. I was like, oh, shit, 367 instead of 340 or 350. You know what I'm saying? So it's very tangible where you can see it right in front of you, whereas with lower takeouts, that's a little bit trickier where you have to do the math and yes generally you get a sense over time that you're getting more back but this is immediate this is right in your face and you know that you're you're being done right as opposed to before and it really it, it really uh embellishes like how much of a difference it was before like this was this was a major problem that nobody was really talking about but i'm curious as to how how likely it is that we're going to get that here in new york or in california or florida or any of these other states Are you privy to any of those discussions? Is there anything else on the horizon for other states getting penny breakage? I'll tell you, we actually
1: approached New York first about this back in 2018. And the reason we did is that New York already has the most liberal breakage policy in America prior to Kentucky's decision. So in New York, breakages is determined based on what the return is uh, on a winning bet. So if it's under $10, the break goes to the nickel on every penny or, or the nickel on every dollar bet. So a $1 return in New York can be $880, $890, or $9. Whereas in most states it's $9 or $880. There is no middle ground. When you win more, when it's over $10, it goes to a dime on every dollar. You win uh, above, I think, $50, and then it goes to a quarter and it's like you went over $500, it goes to a dollar. The rounding is a, is a full dollar unit. Uh, that was done literally, Joe, 30 years ago. Steve Christ was very involved. So uh, we, we looked at that as, as inspiration. We approached Naira, talked about it, and it just never really, you know, there was no momentum at the time to do it. Uh, it requires changing laws. And, you know, in the greater legislative scheme of things, it's tough to get penny breakage on the docket. Um, so uh, we're realis- realistic about it. But I would say, uh, you know, I did get a phone call from a major operator uh, soon after Kentucky went through uh, saying, hey, you know, how'd this all come about? You know, and not knowing the backstory, And I was able to share and, you know, hopefully there, there's more to come there, but it's going to require some work and some impetus we're, we're trying to light you know, the spark, right? get a little ember burning here, and maybe it can spread across the greater industry in a positive way, uh, but, but things are going to change. Things have to evolve. And look, Joe, we need to recognize we are in competition with every other form of gambling, and, and the concept that this money is being withheld simply because that's the way it was 100 years ago, it's just, it's re- really ridiculous.
0: Um, And it it just needs to change. I mean, it's it's so true. Like it's it's a hot topic in, in racing about the competition with sports betting right now it's interesting. I've had a bunch of people on this show and I ask them about their sports betting handle and literally only one person, Michael Baychak, has said he bets sports. Everyone else is either in a state that doesn't allow it yet or doesn't get into sports betting. But what's your sense in terms of how that handle, how sports betting handle is affecting racing handle at this point? Obviously, that's a macro question. You don't have the numbers specifically, but but what's your sense? Because you know horse players, you know sports bettors, I'm sure. What's your sense about how those things are interacting? So the answer is to... What's actually happening? You
1: know, we don't, um, we're not going to be able to tell, um, and, and it's like, we, we get this question about racing. I I, got, I get it about breakage. Is that going to increase handle? And if so, what percentage of increase in handle came because of penny break? Answering that is, it's it's um, good luck, right? There, there's so many variables that go into it. Here's the way I like to look at this to, to put the perspective on it. And, and you can then fill in the blanks after that. In 2003, we know that about 8% of total wagering handle paramutually on in American racing came from CRW, Computer Robotic Wagering Outlets. Uh, we know the total handle was about $15 billion, adjusted for inflations closer to, to $23, $24 billion now. Um, If you know what today's, you know, handle was last year, $12 billion, right? That's in 2021 dollars. Uh, Solve for what percentage of today's betting comes from CRWs. Uh, There's debate about this topic. Um, It varies by pool, by track, uh, by day, right? Um, If there's a jackpot bet in the mix, that's right part of it. I think the answer is between 30 and 40 percent, uh, and on some days at some tracks and some pools, it's higher than 40 percent, and we know that for a fact. When you have that figure and you understand what's been going on, in order to uh, y- you you make the adjustments for inflation and you figure out that over time. Uh, What that means is that the the, the change in our business over that period of time is such that if CRWs today are, let's say, 35% of total wagering, and they were 8% in 2003, and you make the adjustments for inflation, that means that the non-CRW handle has declined by in the neighborhood of 70%, right? So let's call it hardcore racing fans, weekend warriors, anybody who's not using a file upload program uh, who is not uh, algorithmically driving their betting, but, uh, you know, even the higher-end players, you know, might not be. There are plenty of them that don't do that. That all of those customers have declined by 70% in the last two decades adjusted for inflation. So what has happened in those last two decades? Customer choice uh, in entertainment options, in discretionary spending, has changed dramatically. Uh, Gambling options have changed dramatically. They've increased dramatically, and particularly in the last couple of years. I'm a little more concerned that horse racing is going to miss capturing new customers than they are existing customers shifting over to sports betting. Because existing customers could come back. They have an experience. If you make it better, you may be able to recapture them. But you cannot um, provide horse racing in 2022 to brand new customers with not knowing what price you're going to get, with things like penny, you know, not having penny breakage or or losing money as a result of that, or 21% blended takeout, uh, not having. you know, accuracies throughout or surface switches that are late or past posting incidents, all these things that existing customers have kind of come to expect and deal with and tolerate, albeit grudgingly, how do you get new customers and keep them? Uh, that's, that to me, is the, the long-term concern of this, that, you know, yeah, we might be able to pull some people back, but how do we compete with, with new customers emerging in the market?
0: I mean it's such a it's such a hard question to answer but like you say there are so many little things that racing could potentially clean up to not chase away the people that are already banging on the horses and you mentioned this at the tif recently about an unscratched horse running at mountaineer park And ended up running second for purse money only. This brings us back to the Del Mar Breeders Cup turf issue last year. Obviously, everybody remembers that with modern games being scratched and then re-entering the pools and then running for purse money only. For the life of me, I cannot understand why tracks can't get these little things right. Like, I understand the 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 thrust of a of a purse money only rule. It's like if you have an entry, you know, and one of the horse one of the horses scratches late and you get stuck with the other half. Like, I get that. You know, I, I think the idea behind it is to protect betters but in the end it screws betters over more often than it protects them why do you think these things persist in racing when they seem relatively easy, easily fixable uh,
1: they are more easily fixable than explaining a logic for still having them in place today right. um i i i take that same approach when i'm trying to tackle topics How, wh- what is the the best source wh- where should i go to fix this um, and to be fair, the Mountaineer situation came to me um, by a horse player who was playing the pick four that day and uh, sent a message to me saying, you've got to see what's going on here. This this is unbelievable. They're announcing two races or a race. No, it was actually used um, probably 18 minutes, I think, after the start of the sequence. Of a pick four, they announced that a horse that had been announced to scratch and had been scratched for basically 40 minutes prior to the first race. You can imagine how big Mountaineer's pick four handle was 40 minutes prior to the first. Yeah. Was going to run and that the wrong horse had been scratched. And number five will not run and number six will run now. And, And this customer was just apoplectic. Um as to what was going to happen. Now, uh, you you could go to the track on that thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, the rules that are in place as to what needs to be followed, uh, are set by the commission, right? It's not, they're not responding to house rules. They're responding to, to West Virginia racing commission rules. And so I did engage with the commission, uh, to learn more about what had happened. Was there an honest, honest mistake? Yes. Um, did it likely cost customers something, uh, potentially, uh, the, the scratched horse did not win. Um, the the, 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 racing commission said to us, uh, you know, we were prepared to, they were going to pay all, um, if the scratched horse had won. And what I kind of realized later is it was going to pay to all anyway, because no one would have had the scratched horse on a ticket. You know, unless they had placed their pick four bet 40 minutes prior to the first race. So we shouldn't be breathing a sigh of relief because we we got this one by on on this occasion. Well, what it comes down to, Joe, the origin uh, of all of these things, in my estimation, is that the rules were written a long time ago and they have not evolved to the modern game. Uh, we have evolved our bet types. We have not evolved the rules that affect those bet types. Um We have a series of antiquated rules that vary state by state and even the best intentions of things like the ARCI's model rules committee, they just can't stay on top of all of these things uh, concurrently uh, and get everything done. Um, They're they're just, it's not, the the sport is not positioned that way. I've sat in those model rules committee meetings and it's four hours of talking about medication. (laughs) Now, there have been occasional wagering conversations and rules conversations around those. And in fact, if you look at the rules in some of these states, new bet types have some voluminous rule sets because they've been required to put them in. But some of these old rules are still on the books. I mean, I could tell you right now in, in the state of New York, you know, at Saratoga, at BAQ, uh, you can, um, if a horse is unruly, at at the starting gate, it is within the prerogative of the starter to pull the horse out of the starting gate with the jockey on and quote unquote, start the horse behind the line. This is on on the rule books today. So imagine, you know, they're going in for a a 10,000 New York bred claimer, um, you know, in in February and a horse is, is unruly. And instead of the vet scratching the horse, he said, "No, this horse is fine to run. We're just going to take him out. We're going to put a line here, and we're going to let him start from a standing start behind the line. Uh, that's allowable <laughs> under the rules Can't today. For that. Yeah, for that. yeah, that'll be a heck of a uh, of a release that we'll uh, we'll be able to put out. So, yeah. but it could happen.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, we have not been looking after customers, and and frankly, you know, if you go to any of these meetings." Rarely do customers speak. Rarely do commissions hear from customers in salient arguments about the rules and why they need to change. I've I've participated in countless meetings. I've called in, I've talked about situations in public comment periods, um, and I try to handle it as respectfully and diligently and seriously as I possibly can, when sometimes, I mean, these situations were, were ridiculous. And the modern games one is too. And and it's it's anytime a purse-only situation comes into play in New York, ridiculous. You, you have essentially created two races, a race for betters and a race for owners. Yeah. And the race for owners is pure. But the race for horse players can be affected by the race that's been created for owners in uncountable ways. Yeah. It's impossible to tell. That's what happened in a Breeders' Cup grade one race. Uh, And I can tell you the the rules have not been adjusted yet in California. I participated in a hearing about this, uh, talked about the possibilities. And and to be fair, the, the California Horse Racing Board seemed to want to talk more about the possibility that bettors could more easily make alternate selections when putting their tickets in. Does not solve the problem of having a horse that no one could bet on impacting the race for bets that had already been
0: placed. I mean, that's like the, that's the thing is, it does seem like those person money only horses win a disproportionate amount of the time, but it's not even about that. It's about how they can, like you said, how they can affect the other race, whether it's the pace, whether it's drifting into another horse's path. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely infuriating. I think about these rules a lot, kind of like, these like little deficiencies and like a really old system that then like in California, like they had this giant wildfire and then they went and they did an investigation about it. And it was like this one rusty hook that hadn't been replaced in a hundred years that dropped the electrical line and started this gigantic wildfire that burned for months and months and months. Obviously, this is a less consequential example, but that's what I think about in racing is like these tiny little cracks in the system that nobody, save for you guys and some other people, really identify until it becomes that fire. And that fire was what happened in the juvenile turf. And it's-
1: Yeah, I can tell you that uh, it's a it's a perfect analogy uh, for the the greater ills. You know, broken windows, right? If, if we if we clean up the broken windows, the house will look a lot neater. Yeah. Um, no matter what other work needs to happen inside, we, we have a lot of broken windows. Uh, we have a lot of infrastructure issues, right? And and uh, I'm picking on New York here, but you know there was a stretch at Saratoga this summer where the head on camera on the dirt track was not working. Right, um, and when you go and look at what the head-on replays were, they, they were not; uh, they, they were shot ground level from like the finish line. Yeah, and you're like, what if? Uh, look, and, and you—I I believe it was the test. There was an inquiry or an objection, and, and there was something that was adjudicated based on not having a direct head-on view. That's like. That's really tough to take. Yeah. Um, the operator is failing, the regulator is failing, and they're failing the customers. And to a, to an extent, the horsemen, but really the customers. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's just you know everyone leaves uh, for a different reason. Um, everyone moves on to something else for a different reason. Eventually, they get to a point where they just can't take it, and and something small may just turn them off yeah and it could be those sorts of things and, and, and you just can't let that you can't let that uh, persist Conversely there are jurisdictions on this planet that stay on top of their rules and and I was a part of witnessing that process in Hong Kong for three years. I saw how the rules are constantly monitored and tweaked and adjusted to upgrade the standards of the sport. And to protect customers and mm-hmm. to look out for them, and we really can't do it enough. Uh, do the commissions have the resources? The personnel have the you know the right training to go over these things? The right perspective? There's a lot of reasons as to why I, I think it hasn't happened. But uh, look, uh, there's there's no legitimate excuse for it. The bottom line is you're running a regulated gambling uh, endeavor you need to regulate it appropriately.
0: I mean, yeah, that's that should be a no brainer. And like, you know, going from Hong Kong to back to this, it must've been like going back in time 100 years, you know, I, I can imagine the, the culture shock when it comes to how, how racing is regulated and conducted over there. Let's just talk real quick about the timing issue, because I do want to move on to some lighter topics, because I don't want this to be a 45 yeah. minute pitch fest, even though it definitely could be justifiably. But let's talk a little bit about the timing thing before we move on. Um, this has been an issue. This has been an increasingly bad issue in terms of how races are presented in the past performances. Now you can tell me that maybe it's actually improving, but I just anecdotally see more and more hand-timed, hand-timed, hand-timed in the past performances. This seems like something where the old timing systems were actually working well, and then we threw in these new wrinkles of this GPS system that then kind of upended the whole thing and has made it less efficient to where we still don't have an official time for the Saratoga Derby, which is a grade one race at Saratoga a couple of months ago. Now, I know you're going to talk about run ups and like what an what a unnecessary wrinkle that is. So definitely please go on about that, but also just your sense of, of whether or not this is going to be fixable in the near future.
1: It is such
0: a complex um Topic to really get into. And I
1: I don't want to take us too far down the rabbit hole of timing. So I'll say this there have been improvements uh, in the last two years. Um, Is the problem solved? Absolutely not. Uh, There have been some improvements. Uh, Some tracks, almost every race is considered hand timed. And I would uh, estimate that if we went back in history, Almost every race at those tracks may have been hand-timed for longer than we even know or that is reported on paper. Uh, It's just that now it's being displayed as hand-timed. There are a series of issues that affect timing these days. One of them, I think, is that the long-time kind of legacy equipment really hasn't been kept up with, really hasn't been, it hasn't evolved. And then there's an introduction of newer technology that is a part of the the, the greater timing landscape. And I think everyone wants to use newer technology. The problem is the old technology worked really well if you wanted to time races, quote unquote, inaccurately. And that's the thing. It worked well in a bad way of timing races. Um, As we've evolved with more turf racing, more lanes on turf courses, uh, as the old technology continued to antiquate, uh, it became tougher and tougher to keep up with it, more and more expensive. And it's was like, let, I think there was a push to move to simpler, um, more modern solutions. The problem is we're still timing races in the old manner. And that, I think, is really hurting uh racing from kind of just, you know, biting the bullet and moving on down the road to a more modern way. You take any engineer in any discipline, bring him to a racetrack and say, how do you think we time races? I don't think they would ever come up with what it is that is done in America today to time races, where the untimed portion of a race varies depending upon the configuration of the track, where timing poles are, where the gate is placed where the gate is placed for different distances on the same piece of grass, but just dependent upon where the rail setting is, it it, it really defies all logic. A six furlong race at Pimlico and a six furlong race at Churchill on dirt tracks where the rails don't change are wildly different races. Uh, And that's, again, like I said, not even getting into the the turf and the rails and everything. So I I think a, a big step forward will be the industry realizing we've got to get rid of timing races as we did for 80 or 90 years, which was a really bad way. Um, and, And it just didn't need to happen the way it did. And move on to something that is more modern, timing from the start of the gate. Now, if you time it to a pulse of when the starter hits the button, and a pulse is sent to downstream systems to start time. that probably makes the most sense. Um, But it means that the clock starts when the horses are standing still. And in reality, that's what happens in other jurisdictions. Uh, Not all. uh, Timing kind of varies uh, by jurisdiction. But uh, none of them have as inconsistent an experience as we have in North America because of run-up timing. And it's just something we need to move
0: on from. Well, you mentioned the the different jurisdictions and the different rules and the, the different customs. I want to talk a little bit about the interference rules because there's a little bit of debate about this, and I think we're going to disagree on this about the category one interference rules. Which you can correct me if I'm wrong. Basically, it it disqualifies and punishes the connections of the horse instead of the betters. Where if there's an there's a there's an interference thing and it's, there's a disqualification, it's the purse money, it's the jockey maybe gets a fine or whatever, and the, the better of the horse who won does not get taken down. Is that is that correct? Do I have that right?
1: I would not agree entirely. I, I would just change it uh, around. The question that the stewards consider about interference has changed. That question yields fewer demotions. Hmm. So, uh, jockeys are still penalized. In some cases, they may be penalized more. But I think you could argue that in most cases where there is a demotion, the jockey is likely facing a couple days anyway. Um, now they may get those days just without a demotion. And the question changes. So what we have today, for the most part across America, is did the interference cost the horse a better placing? Again, every state is different. <laughs> uh, the wording, the interpretation varies, but that's more or less what is in place in almost every state, with the exception now of Oklahoma, which has adopted the Category 1 rule. And it means that uh, I like to take the most outrageous example because rules are imperfect. So Category One's not perfect, Category 2 is not perfect, but take the most Ludicrous consideration in a field of 200 horses where the first place horse bumped the 199th placed horse 27 miles from the finish in a 28-mile race. If the stewards believe that that interference cost the 199th place horse an opportunity to finish 198th, The demotion is warranted. It is essentially what happened in the 2019 Kentucky Derby. Did maximum security interfere with several horses? Yes. Long-range toddy, John Court protested. Uh, They had finished 17th. Um, Could they have finished 16th if not for that interference? It's believable. I think it's a rational conclusion that, that could be made and was made rightly under the rules? Did it give that horse more prize money, a greater placement? Not at all. But under the rule, that made sense. It was a a logical demotion. Country House had no argument there. You could say War of Will did, right? But um, it it cost War of Will perhaps a a better placing, but they did not claim foul. Uh, Is it always just? No. No. so recognizing that not that every rule can't possibly account for all situations fairly, equally, justly, we look at it and say, are we going to have more unjust outcomes uh, in category two in the present day? And I think the answer is yes. That a good number of interference situations exist where a horse is slowing. Another horse is passing it and is accelerating. They bump, they brush, and a horse is cost fourth or fifth as a result of that. Um, Entirely fair all the time? Maybe not. But in category one, the question changes to, if the interference hadn't occurred, would the horse that was aggrieved, the sufferer of the interference, have finished ahead of the horse? Excuse me. If the interference had not occurred, would the horse that caused the interference have finished ahead of the horse that suffered the interference? So if not for this, would the result still have, have played out the way it was? And sometimes, you know, there, a close call is still going to be a close call. But we think on balance, this is the fair outcome. And realistically, Joe, it's the harmonized outcome. The entirety of the rest of the developed racing world uses that rule. We do not have many harmonized rules across the entirety of this sport. And in this instance, Oklahoma has made the decision to move to category one. I do believe there are other states, provinces that are in line behind them that are strongly considering it. And I think more will follow. And then we could actually get to one global harmonized interference rule, uh, which is a win, I think, for horse players.
0: I mean I I get what you're saying and I understand the logic of it my own my counter argument would be it depends on when the interference happened because if a horse finishes eighth but he got cut off a half mile out of the race and then has to pull up and lose 10 lengths I mean who are you to say that that horse wouldn't have finished ahead of the horse that won like it just sometimes there's interference that's so egregious I think that it doesn't matter where the horse was placed. The horse lost all chance of winning the race at that moment. And I think that that's what happened in the 2019 Kentucky Derby to a lot of horses. Obviously not to Long Range Toddy. But to a war of will, like you said. I think that, that once you cost the horse the entire chance of winning the race, then I think it doesn't matter where that horse ends up. And then there's also this, the, the safety aspect of it. We've seen riders like Paco Lopez, for example, who were just willing to knock off and, and pinch back horses that may be tiring. You know, 316s from home, they may look like they're tiring. Who knows? Horses re-rally. And I think that, that it, it leads for a bad incentive that the horses who are backing up potentially do not matter in terms of safety. Now, whether or not that plays out, and you know more about this than me, whether or not that plays out, and there are more safe, more you know unsafe incidents in Category One jurisdictions, you know that better than me. But I think it, it leads to bad incentives that the horses are sacrificable who are maybe backing up during the race. So,
1: two points: number one, no one wants an unsafe situation, uh, and there has been no evidence. From jurisdictions who have made the change in recent years, Japan, France, and Germany, the the most notable, of an increase in uh, dangerous riding, uh, injuries, uh, incidents like that, uh, zero evidence. Um, And I've spoken to the stewards themselves, the authorities uh, involved, um, and and there is research out there on this topic. It, it it, It has not transpired.
0: Yeah, but those places have Paco Lopez,
1: I, I would... Well, <laughs> you know, look, I, 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 I'm very sensitive to that. And that yeah. is why in the Oklahoma Category 1 rule, they've adopted a provision that is specific for dangerous riding. And they have defined dangerous riding. And we use the term disqualification right now to basically mean changing the placings. But really what we mean when we say that is demoting. We're taking a horse and we're demoting them um, from from where they were to where they, we think they, they should be. Uh, disqualification in the international sense means basically throwing a horse out. And Oklahoma has introduced this provision that if the interference caused is a result of dangerous riding, as it is defined in their rule, and the exact wording, which I don't have off the top of my head. But if there is dangerous riding, then the stewards have the ability to throw you out, to throw you to last, to to ride dangerously, cannot be rewarded. So it's not that there isn't a brush or there isn't some interference, uh, there's careless riding, it happens. But danger, unacceptable, uh, intolerable. And to be fair, within the rules today in many states, there is a provision that says, you may place them behind the horse that they caused or the stewards may place the horse last. It just basically has never been used. Uh, That provision now is in place specifically for dangerous riding. And look, so far to date, there have not been any demotions in Oklahoma quarter horses or thoroughbreds since the rule went into play. Uh, There have been a handful of objections Uh, thrown out off, you know, they weren't really, uh, I wouldn't say we've had a really strong test of the rule yet. Uh, Close, but nothing that's really gotten it there. Um, And I think this is, this is good for players. Uh, I really do. I I think it will yield more uh, consistent outcomes. The question that the stewards consider is different. It changes. And I think it's something they can visualize a little bit better as opposed to, did this fading horse could could this horse have been eighth and still get zero prize money uh, instead of ninth, um, and that that we're going to to justify taking down a six length winner?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I do think that that's a that's a fair argument, and I, I understand your points. Uh, I just you know in and in this case in the category one rules, I do think that you're putting a little bit more power in the stewards' hands, which is not always a good thing in racing. But in the interest of time, we have to move on. To the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I wore this jersey just for Pat. I didn't want to just take the guns out. This is an Allen Iverson rookie jersey, which I love. It's one of my favorite pieces of clothing. Last time I spoke to you about the Sixers, it didn't seem like you were too optimistic. You know, you said that you said that Joel Embiid, as much as you love him, seems like a little bit of a dinosaur, and kind of the old big man, the old slow big man. You know, they had just gotten flushed out of the playoffs, I think, when we spoke to you about that. How are you feeling now about Sixers basketball?
1: I am uh, – look, hope springs eternal at the start of a new season, right? So so you feel positive about what could happen. You feel the energy of Embiid and Harden sitting together and Harden talking about what great shape he's in. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and jokingly saying he lost 100 pounds. He does look like he's in better shape for what it's worth. For now. But, um, look, is it going to play out that way? Um How's the season really going to go? I, 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 I'm more positive than not. Um, but, and I really do think Harden's freshness has brought about that, that positivity. But we'll see what happens. Um, look, it's a tough conference. Um, and, and, you know, they, they've changed the schedules. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they have made the back end of the schedules far more competitive for the top teams in the league to play each other at the end of the regular season. And so, like, I looked at what the Sixers are going to face in April. And if things look the way they did this year, they're going to face the six best teams in the league in the last six games of the regular season. So, uh, who knows what happens between now and then? But I am, I'm hopeful. I think there will be improvement and a little bit of uh, uncertainty in how the rest of the conference has evolved
0: over the offseason. No, I hear you. And uh, the interesting thing with the Sixers is they're kind of a test case, I think, for a lot of fan bases who are being asked to accept a complete complete fire sale and, you know, a rebuild from the bottom up. You know, I'm a Jet fan. I've been hearing for five years how this is, well, we need a total rebuild. Well, you know, other teams seem to be doing it quicker than we do, but... You know, it's so interesting how when that turns, when it turns from trust the process to now you got to win a goddamn championship. So, what's the temperature in Philly now? I, I assume trusting the process is over. Now you got to win the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I, I think fans will have a shorter fuse this year, right? There was a lot of uncertainty last year with the, the Ben Simmons situation, and they played far fewer games with Harden than with the question of what was going to happen with Ben. Um, so, the fuse I think is, is shortening. Um, look, we're not in the situation that Utah is in, uh, which I think is another fascinating consideration of what they're, of what they're trying to do. I'm a really gross reconstruction. Um, I'm interested to see how that plays out, but, uh, yeah, short, short Philadelphia fuse. Some would say our fuses are normally pretty short. (laughs) So uh, yeah, look if, if they if they open up uh, two and six,
0: yeah. um, it, it could it could be a, a long season. It also depends on what the Eagles keep doing because the Eagles look damn good right now. Have an MVP candidate seemingly out of nowhere. Got to be feeling pretty good about them. They could be seventeen and zero. <laughs> uh,
1: they really could look at the schedule. They have the third weakest schedule in the league uh, the rest of the way based on the early returns. Uh, I think the best game on their schedule is the the Packers. They get them, I think, I think that game is in Philadelphia Thanksgiving weekend. So um, I'm not saying it's going to happen, Joe, but it is not impossible. And the only way you're going to win all 17 is to win the the first three.
0: So So, they've done that so far. It sounds like Pat Cummings, expert handicapper, is ready to do a 14-leg parlay. Every single week for the rest of the season <laughs> for the Eagles that go seventeen and zero. Put your money not not down. in
1: Kentucky, Joe. Not
0: in Kentucky. That's right. Uh, yeah. All right, Pat. I could talk to you all day, but we got to cut it off. I love spending time with you and hearing you speak about the things in the industry that are wrong. And you know, you're one of the guys that I like because you propose solutions. People love to bitch in this sport, and rightfully so. But you're one of the guys who propose solutions. So thank you for that. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, it's always a
1: work in progress. Uh, no solution is going to be the end of our problems, right? Um, no problem is going to be the end of our sport. Uh, all of these things are multifactorial. We've got to get them all right. Um, it's, it's a constant effort. And look, we, we rely on other people to help us and get this done. We can't do it, right? It, it requires a, a real effort, and we just want to see the sport improve. So it's a team effort. We appreciate the attention that you bring to issues that affect betters. Uh, and really that the TDN does as well. The coverage is fantastic, and, and we're really thankful for
0: it. Well, we're thankful for you, Pat. Appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks, Joe. Welcome back to the Breeders' Cup Challenge betting series here on Better Things with Joe Bianca. Last time on Better Things. I feel like I need like a little dramatic voiceover for that last time on Better Things. At Kentucky Downs, I whiffed in the turf sprint, unfortunately. Got a little too cute in the Kentucky Turf Cup as I was right about the winner Red Knight. But I kind of underestimated the price he was going to be. I used him on top in the try. Trying to get a bigger pop, thinking he'd only be 6 or 7 to 1 Only to watch him win at 12 to 1 and have a horse sneak into third to bust up my try. Man, listen, I could do a whole future episode of this show about getting too cute in my bets, but the end result is we dropped $230. We're now just narrowly in the black at plus $40.45. This week, we are featuring Belmont at the Big A. I never thought I'd get to see the day. Where their Breeders' Cup Challenge races run at Aqueduct. This is going to be the most prestigious it's spelled at Aqueduct since they used to simulcast Saratoga there in the summer. Listen, the Big A is a relic, and the Wrecking Ball is coming for it soon, but it's also not without its charm and history. Secretariat ran there, the grandstand used to be teeming with 50,000 fans. There was, in fact, a Breeders' Cup at Aqueduct once upon a time, and most importantly for decades, it served as New York's blue-collar racetrack, where the smaller stables and the lesser-known jockeys could have a realistic chance of winning some races if only they were able to brave the brutal Ozone Park winner filled with the winds off of Jamaica Bay. I spent more days than I'd like to admit taking the A train out to North Conduit Ave., for an unglamorous day at the races that still just felt like home. So I'm glad it's getting its moment in the sun while Belmont is prepped to be the future permanent home of downstate racing in New York. It deserves to be the place to race one last time. Overall, there are a full dozen Breeders' Cup winning year in challenge qualifiers this weekend across the country as we get closer and closer to the Breeders' Cup. Our two races are the grade one champagne stakes for two-year-olds going a mile on the main track. A winning year in qualifier for the Breeders' Cup, Cup Juvenile. And the grade two Miss Grillo stakes going a mile and a 16th on the turf for two-year-old Phillies winning year in qualifier for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies turf. The two races can be seen on NBC from 4 to 6 Eastern this Saturday, October 1st. There is some rain in the forecast, but I'm going to handicap the card as if they're going to be on the turf. We'll start with the Miss Grillo, which goes as the eighth race at 439 Eastern. Just a six-horse field with 11 combined starts, so there's not much established form here these are the races where watching replays can be so crucial to forming a strong opinion. The two obvious horses are number two, Free Look, and number six, Be Your Best, who have devastating turns of foot, and they looked the apart part on replays. Those two are tough to get past for me, but I do have some interest in the New York bred number five, I'm Just Kidding. She's a little slow on paper, but... You know, she's got a good chance to get loose, I think, under Joel Rosario. There's no confirmed speed, speed signed on. She's a daughter of Justify. Also bred to stretch out. Looked a little green, too, so I think she has more development to come. Number four, Alluring angel can't be thrown out either. Her debut race was really impressive visually. She had some excuses when she hung a bit last time out, finishing a close second in a stake at Kentucky Downs. In the Champagne, which is the 10th race at 545, most likely sets up as a redemption story for number six, Gulfport, to me. He was considered clearly the best two-year-old in the country early on after he won his first two races by a combined 19 and a quarter lengths. Bloom came off the rose a little bit after he was a well-beaten second in his last two both times as a heavy favorite, but he had excuses in those races. He got checked hard on the turn of the Saratoga Special just as he was making his move, and he drifted out pretty sharply in a crucial spot coming off the turn over a mess of the track in the hopeful Both times he re-rallied in deep stretch, but he just ran into two nice horses in Damon's Mount and Forte, who had simply gotten too much of a jump on him. Draws outside in here, which is key, with several speeds to his inside. I expect him to run much closer to those first two races with a clear trip and be best in the final furlong. He's not going to be any great price, but I think he won't be favored for the first time in his career. There's a Brad Cox horse in there, number three, Verifying, who has a lot of buzz behind him. Uh, well-publicized half-brother to Midnight Bizu, Got a big buyer in his win first ta- timeout. Only other horse I'm interested in, the Champagne, is number two, Top Recruit, who ran a huge race, gamely winning the Ellis Park Juvenile Stakes last out. Won an early speed duel, and then he got hooked on the turn by Curly Jack and probably fought back the whole stretch to win that race and that effort was flattered curly jack came back to win the grade three Iroquois stakes a couple weeks ago at Churchill Downs so I'm going to play a couple pick three tickets starting in the Miss Grillo closing in the champagne with the grade three Belmont turf sprint stakes in between we'll do a one dollar pick three number two free look number four alluring angel number five I'm just kidding and number six be your best spreading with one two three four Six, seven, eight, twelve in the turf sprint was number two top recruit and number six Gulfport in the Champagne for a total of seventy-two dollars. The same ticket with just free look and be your best in the first leg, same the rest of the way for a total of thirty-six dollars. And one more punching those two in the first leg and Gulfport in the last leg, same horses in the middle leg for a two-dollar ticket for a total of thirty-six dollars. Then one last ticket spreading in the Miss Grillo and the Champagne. In case the horse I like most in the turf sprint, number 10, Dancing Buck, who ran too good to lose last time at Saratoga, wins the middle leg. That'll be a $1 pick three, 2, four, five, six, with 10 with all for a total of $24. All told, this week's investment is $168. Best of luck this weekend. Don't forget to catch the two Breeders' Cup tickets punched in the Miss Grillo and Champagne broadcast live from Aqueduct on NBC from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Saturday. All right, so that's going to do it for this week's episode of Better Things with Joe Bianca. Thank you to Pat Cummings for coming on. Had a great conversation with him. Thanks to the Breeders' Cup for their sponsorship. Thanks to our producer, Patty Wolf, and our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Aliyah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. And thank you for watching. We'll be back next week with another great guest and another Breeders' Cup handicapping segment as we're now just over five weeks away from the Breeders' Cup World Championships, November 4th, 5th at Keeneland. We'll see you next week.